Tonight, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that shows two harvests. Two harvests. And in Revelation 14, verses 14 to 16, you see a grain harvest. And then verse 17 to 20, you see a grape harvest. Grain grape. He's like, God cares about wheat and grape juice in the future. No, those are symbolic of something else. And the harvest, each of these harvests, is actually a huge judgment. So let's consider them tonight. They are there. We want to declare the whole counsel of God as we go through the book of Revelation. Revelation 14, verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud... And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. He that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. There's a grape harvest. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the altar, out from the altar, which had the power, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle. And gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city. And blood came out of the winepress even under the horses' bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. When I look at this passage again, you see two types of harvests. You see one of that's implying grain, one that shows a vintage, grapes. Each of those represent humanity. When I look at this passage, we see basically in the future, these are moments of God's wrath. Wrath is is fury executed upon deserving criminals. It seems like only God can do it right. The Bible tells us to put away all wrath and anger. It seems like we just can't do wrath right. Now, officially, as governments and institutions, they're supposed to execute wrath on on criminals. And even then, it's done in a formal sense, in a um, controlled institutional sense. But here, God is executing wrath. We're going to probe into this. When I look at this passage, I see, it reminds me of a story my grandpa Morgan told me, my mom's dad. 
Um, my grandpa Morgan missed being in Korea. He was too young for World War II, and there was actually guys in his age that did go to Korea, but he never went there. He was supposed to go there. He didn't. I think he went to Europe or Italy for a while. But my grandpa Henry told me the story, and it goes something like this. Um, he got into, I think it was baseball, in the Army. Grandpa was in the Army. And, but Grandpa observed, he wasn't a Christian at the time, but he observed another soldier who was a Japanese-American. He was American citizen, but Japanese ethnicity. And um, uh, this guy was a Christian. Grandpa wasn't officially, wasn't saved. He wasn't saved, but he observed this other guy and got along well with him. I can't remember his name, but there's this other Japanese-American Christian. And there was another guy who was kind of like a champion boxer. They, they, you know, these guys occupied themselves playing sports, boxing, and he was a boxer in the army. And he was really good. I mean, he was a, kind of a brute type of a guy. Big and well-built, and he just beating people up. Well, that extended outside of the ring. He kind of picked on other soldiers, too. And um, he, my grandpa observed that this guy would commonly pick on this other Japanese-American soldier. Who pro I'm, the assumption, that if I remember right, is that he wasn't as big as the boxer. You know, just kind of a fit and trim and everything. And he, but he knew some martial arts. He did. And uh, this guy would, th this other Anglo-American soldier picking on this Japanese-American soldier and just picking on him, pushing him around, and he'd punch him. I don't know how, what extent, but it wasn't good. Bullying, you know, here and there, here and there, here and there. And uh, Grandpa observed him. He said he seemed to have a good testimony. He seemed to be very patient. And then he said, finally, one day, it's just, it got really bad, you know. Um, let me just say this. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't teach you to let people abuse you. Okay, when it talks about turning the other cheek, it's talking about receiving a rebuke from somebody. Like, are you trying to teach me something? It's not talking about, oh, I'm supposed to be a human punching bag and let you kill me. That's not, that's not what it's saying. Okay, so anyways, this guy was, he was tolerating to a certain extent some of this bullying by this boxer. And finally one day, this Japanese, who, again, I forget his name, this Japanese-American soldier responded. And he thrashed this boxer. And the boxer never bothered him again. And um, then, I mean, using his whatever, you know, it's not always strength, it's skill, too, and leverage. That's why I learned in... Mar if, you learn, if you learn wrestling first... And then martial arts, you can go against a boxer. So anyways, that's a side note there. Uh, <laughs> so because the boxer might do a swing, you let him miss, and you grab him, and it's all over. He's on the ground squealing like a little girl. Anyways, uh, so, but anyway, so this guy did his martial, and, he hurt, and he'd hurt him, and he, that boxer never bothered him. And he was bigger, heavier, and all that, and he thrashed him. Grandpa said it was, it was, pretty, it was pretty impressive. And then the guy said that he came to my grandpa, I think it was the next day, and he apologized to my grandpa. He's like, I'm sorry I did that. And my grandpa's like, 
got nothing to apologize here, you know. I think it's because he was trying to be a testimony to my grandpa. Well, my grandpa said, that's fine. That's perfectly understandable. And then he told my grandpa, I ran out of cheeks to turn, you know. Again, I take that. I interpret the Sermon on the Mount differently than what he just said, but that's what he said. I ran out of cheeks. But the way grandpa looked at it is he saw another side to this fellow Japanese soldier. He saw him as a, a right upright guy, meek and mild, does his thing, does his job, he's patient. And then one day, he sees another side to him. But he, my grandpa saw them both as righteous. The meek and mild side was right. The, the, side, that, uh, the side that exacts righteous vengeance back on somebody who's basically trying to permanently hurt him, my grandpa saw, that's right too. And I'm just telling you, this is what you, I think sometimes we don't see in Jesus Christ. There is a lion. He's called the Lion of Judah. He's not just the lamb. He's not just the meek and mild one on the chosen. Some of you are like, I don't want the chosen. It's some Netflix thing or something. And it's, uh, if it helps people, I'm happy about it. But he's not just that. He will be, he is a lion and it will be evident. One day. And he'll be righteous side of him too. Righteous. This passage has two of those moments. They're incredible. I, I, I struggle, like, how am I going to describe this? This is amazing. So you have this, they're seen in these two harvests, a grain harvest and a grape harvest. Let's, let's kind of probe into them, and I'll do my best to make them understandable. Verse 14 John says, this is what I saw. I saw, verse 14, him a, a white cloud and one sat upon the cloud like unto the Son of Man. Now, long story short, this is Jesus. And he liked calling himself the Son of Man because it emphasizes humanity and his humility. This is Jesus. And he sees this vision of him on a cloud. He hasn't come back to earth yet. He's on a cloud. He has a... What does it say on his head? A golden crown. It shows that he's, a, he's already a winner. In his hand, a sharp sickle. These things, again, are things that represent a literal event and actions that are going to happen. And then it says he's there, and Jesus is there, the Son of Man on the cloud, hovering above the earth. It's showing his presence. It's showing his standby to do something with a sickle. You take a sickle to cut grain. When the grain's, it's done. This grain's done. You cut it, you take it away, you burn it if it's, if it's bad or if it's weeds. You put it in a barn if it's good. He's waiting there. He's waiting and an angel comes out of the temple. That's an, a, a messenger from the Father saying, okay, it's time to do this. And he says, thrust in thy sickle and reap. For the time for thee to reap, for the time of the harvest of the earth is ripe. Verse 16, and he that sat on the cloud thrusted his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, we're going to pause right there. The harvest, the, the grain harvest, what is this? This is, and again, you'll see it more once we get into chapter 16. This is a, again, chapter 14, is, it's showing, here's a little snapshot of what you're going to see in just a minute. That right there is showing you everything that happens in chapter 16. It's showing you a 
because chapter 16 is the last round of these what we call vile judgments. Some Bible translations change it to bowls. I think it means vials, vile judgments, a little different. And they are the last and very intense judgments that are going to be on the earth one day. And when they, they go boom, 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 boom. And when they go on the earth, it's like a whole mass of humanity just wiped out. Not all of them, but a lot of them just cut down. So look what that looks like. This is an overview. This is a foreview of what you see in chapter 16. I'm going to try to quickly highlight some of it. Here's the verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1. I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of, uh, of the wrath of God upon the earth. Verse 2. And the first went out and poured his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon men, which had the mark of the beast, and upon men which worship his image. Okay? Grievous sore. It's moving along. Verse 3. The second angel poured his vial in the sea. The sea became blood as a dead man. Every living soul in the sea died. Verse 4, the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. There's no more fresh water. And then there's some commentary on that. God, you're righteous for doing this. Nobody can fuss with you. Look at verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. Verse 9, and men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God which had power over these plagues. They repented not to give Him glory. You're like, the sun is so hot. It's going to be real hot one day where it's going to scorch people. God's going to do this for the fourth vile judgment. Number The fifth one is in verse 10. The fifth angel poured his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. They gnawed their tongues for pain. And does it say they repented and finally trusted Christ? No, verse 11, look what it says. And they blasphemed the God of, their, of heaven. They knew He's there. It's not like they're all atheists. We don't believe in a God. You haven't intellectually convinced us. They know there's a God. They know there's a God. They keep cursing Him back. They blasphemed God. Even though there was a God, there was a flying angel in chapter 14, verse 6, that went around and preached the gospel and said, you don't have to keep doing this. God sends another judgment. They blaspheme God. Verse, they blaspheme Him. Verse 12, the sixth angel pours his vial upon the earth. They clear the way of the Euphrates. A whole bunch of kings come marching through. Three unclean spirits come out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet to gather the whole rest of the world together for the battle of Armageddon. We'll look at that. And then look at verse 17. I'm trying to highlight it quickly. The seventh angel poured his vial into the air. There came a great voice out of the temple of heaven, out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. That means this is the last one. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. The verse 9 says, The city, the great Babylon, city of Babylon, we'll look into that, was divided into three parts. Verse 20, every island fled away. No more mountains, no more islands. Whoa. Verse 21, there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men, what did they do? Blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. For the plague of thereof was exceeding great. Wow. You're like, God, I can't believe He's doing this to humanity. I can't believe that God's so wrathful. How could you believe in a God so wrathful? Well, you know, sometimes we think, sometimes we think you just need to believe in the goodness of humanity. You know, when men are, ta- when men are, when men's sins are confronted and taken away of, sometimes they become beasts. 
sometimes we become, we are very depraved, every one of us. And even those of us that are saved, the thing that's, that our, our bailout is the Holy Spirit living with us and keeping ourselves under the Word of God. We are all very depraved. But here God is sending a judgment. Again, this is, this is towards the end. This is after gospel preaching from an angel, from 144,000, from two really crazy, well, we shouldn't say crazy, really unique prophets by the temple. And they still are saying no to God, yes to the beast, yes to the dragon, yes to the false prophet. Keep Babylon products coming our way. We don't want to mess up our economy. We're going to get into that. And they sing, which is also called the great whore, and no to God, no to God. He sends hail. They blaspheme him. The sun scorches him. They blaspheme him. They don't repent. See, some of us are like, man, if, you know, we have a little thing happen to us, you know. I remember twisting my ankle in college playing basketball. I'm like, God, what are you trying to say to me? I'll repent. I'll do whatever you want, you know. I felt like God literally was getting my attention by that. And, and that's how we should respond if we feel like, oh, God's chasing me. The men on the earth are not doing this. And I think there's another component to all of this. And I, I don't mean to preach on this little spot right here, but there's another component to the fact that men are getting these severe judgments and yet not repenting. It's because it's magnifying how depraved men are. And it also helps us see and appreciate the, the aspect and the component that unless the grace of God works on them also, they won't repent. Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father draw him. Well, anyways, here's these, here's these judgments. So what I just I ran quickly through chapter 16, highlighting some of those. What is that? All of that crunch down is showing you back in chapter 14, What's happening when it shows Jesus, the Son of Man, on a cloud going, that's basically, a, this is a summary of all those seven vile judgments because a lot of people die. It's like, all right, we've had, a, by the way, this is interesting. Look what it says there in verse, look at the end of verse 15. The har, what does it say at the end of verse 15? The harvest of the earth, what's the next word? Is ripe. Okay, that word ripe, we're going to see that word, we're going to see that word ripe again at the end of verse 17 or verse eight, um, 18, okay? Verse 18 says, the grapes are fully ripe. Okay, the, the verse back in verse six, 15 when it says ripe, it's another Greek word that means dry. It's done. They're done. God's been patient. He's waited long enough. All right, they're done. Let's cut this down. Let's clear this out. The next one that we get to talks about being mature, like they're full of juice. So here's this harvest. John said, testify this stuff in the church. This is going to happen. We see another side of the Lord Jesus Christ, but He's righteous in what He's doing. Let's look at this next one. That's the grain harvest. Look at the grape harvest. Verse 17 to 20. And again, this corresponds with something. Now I want to ask somebody if they know what this corresponds with. Raise your hand if you know what this corresponds with. In other words, verses 17 to 20, this grape harvest is a is another description of something else that's going to happen we're going to see in the book of Revelation. Anybody know what it is? It's kind of famous. It's anticipating Battle of Armageddon. All right. Let's read this again. Okay, let's get our mind in again back in the agricultural thought. Picture grapes, picture a vintage. 
picture get. I know where we live in the city, maybe some of us don't have that. It's, much, it's as good as we can get to find decent grapes at the store and bring them home, I know. But imagine this, verse 17, an angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, also having a sharp sickle. A sickle is used to cut, again, grain or grapes. Another angel came out from the altar, had power over fire. He cried to the other one, thrust in thy sickle, gather the, gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Look at verse 19. The angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, gathered the vine of the earth, cast it into the great winepress of God. We'll stop right there. So you have the, there's a bunch of angels in this chapter. I think there's like six. So the one comes out, he has his sickle. The other one says, hey, go ahead and cut those grapes and gather them. Didn't say crush them yet. Gather those clusters of grapes. By the way, I like grapes. They're good. Grapes can picture a good thing or a bad thing in the Bible. Gather them and put them in the, gather them. They're all just juicy. Gather them together and put them in the wine press. Look at the end of verse 19. What does it say? Cast into the, look at, this is an important phrase, verse 19. Cast it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Okay, so it's a different wine press. Cast it into a great wine press of the wrath of God. Well, let's just pause right there. Okay, so um, anybody ever do, what do they call it, the vats? The, the, the grape wine press. There's in a, anybody ever seen a wine press? All right. Anybody ever stomp on one, in one? Okay. Anybody? Okay. So there's two parts to it, from what I understand. They've been around a long time, too. Kind of an upper and lower. You put them in, sometimes they're, they're carved out of rock or made out of cement or brick or something. They put a bunch of grapes, they pile a bunch of grapes in into this wine press, or like I think they would even say a vat, or just big area, and it's enclosed. And at one end of it, it had a little opening, and it goes down into another pool, a little lower, but it gets fed from the upper one. And all you do is you put a whole bunch in there, and then everybody can get in there and clean your feet first. No athlete's foot. Let's check those toes. No ingrown toenails. All right, you get in there and... And they stomp, stomp, stomp. And, and in the Bible, this is pictured as a happy time, joyous time. Yeah, cool. We're getting our... Yeah. We're going to have our grape juice and everything. And you stomp, 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 stomp. And then it goes and it drains and starts filling up right here. And then they take it, bottle it, whatever they're going to do. That's the wine press, the upper and the lower well, God has one. Gather the grapes. These grapes represent not good people. And the wine press represents a real place, not a fun thing. Okay. It represents the Valley of Megiddo, God's wine press. Maybe, how many of you ever heard of the Valley of Megiddo? Have you ever seen pictures of it? It's an area, again, I, I ran out of time doing any illustrations tonight for us to view. Uh, northwest of Jerusalem, about 60 miles, mostly north, a little bit west of Jerusalem, uh, a little more toward the coastal area, the, the Valley of Megiddo. This is where the Battle of Armageddon will take place. This is talking about the Battle of Armageddon. 
So here's Jerusalem. Northwest is this Valley of Megiddo. By the way, they say it's a perfect spot for people from the sea to come, dock, get off there, people from this direction, people from that direction to come. It's kind of like, man, it's just so welcoming. Like It's almost like Grand Central Station or something right here. In fact, they said Napoleon got there and he said this would be the perfect place for all the world to gather and have a battle. And that's exactly what's going to happen. So a huge, wide valley. And um, in fact, did anybody, Sarah, you did you see it? Okay, so she can describe it better than me. Anybody else been there? I think Brother Kevin was. He's not here tonight. Okay. All right. Pictures, even the picture's impressive. I mean, sometimes you're like, yeah, a picture doesn't say, I'm even impressed with the pictures. All right, so this is the wine press of God. It, the, the scripture talks about them gathered there. There's other scriptures. I'm not going to run around to them. Talks about towards the end of the tribulation, when Jesus comes back, people are going to be meeting him like, we want to fight you. <laughs> All right, so they're going to be gathered there. Look what it says, verse 20. The winepress was trodden without the city. In other words, it does not affect Jerusalem. This is interesting. Blood came out of the winepress. Ah, so it isn't talking about great Jews. It's talking about people. Blood came out of the winepress even unto the horses' bridles by the space of a thousand 600 furlongs, that's almost six, that's, pardon me, that's almost 200 miles long. So again, let me try to describe this the best I can. The Valley of Megiddo, there's going to be this gathering. There's an Old Testament scripture, listen to this, that says, and you can read it, Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6. Who is this that's coming from Basra? With, he's glorious in apparel, but he's got... Um, I'm paraphrasing, sorry me, sorry. Basically, uh, blood splatter all over him. But he's glorious. Who is this coming from Basra? About 200 miles south of this area. And he's coming up and he's treading on a winepress. Who is this glorious? And say, it's the Lord. What it is, is Jesus, when the whole world gathered, Jesus is going to come from this direction and come and st stomp out his enemies. And it's going to be, it's going to be as if He's stomping out the whole wine press himself, and just like a person stomps away and it fills up the other lower section, Jesus in this battle against the, the, the beast and the Antichrist and all the godless, God-rejecting armies of the day coming from probably all parts of the world, certainly it says from the east because the river Euphrates dries up and millions of them come, they're going to be all gathered there, and it's going to be so vast an unprecedented human, destruction of human life, life that there's going to be a deep crimson tide of human blood flowing. It says up to the horse's bridle, I don't know, four feet. It, the furlongs is about 200 miles long. I don't know how wide. At that point, I wouldn't care if it was this wide. That's a lot. But it's going to... And by the way, is it interesting? If you study the geology, the geography of this part of Israel, this, it, the, all that happens up here contributes toward this Jordan Valley. Everything flows that way. So it makes perfect sense. When it rains, the rain starts going that way too. So when there's a vintage of the godless 
God-rejecting people of the earth gathered together thinking they're going to fight against Jesus. They're going to be crushed, and it's, their blood's going to flow. It's going to stay outside of Jerusalem. Wow. This is interesting. It's kind of on another note. If you study the feasts of Israel, they have a early, some of the early feasts include harvest. You know, the Pentecost was a, like a harvest feast. And then at the end of the year, there was another feast. And then there was like this celebration of the tabernacles. And I was like, ah, end of the year, we're all excited now. We're happy. We finished our harvest and now we're going to, you know, relax. You know that picture is exactly what Jesus is going to do? There's been a harvest. There's harvest now. There'll be a harvest in the tribulation time. There's going to be a harvest of sinners right toward the end. And then, then after that harvest and after that wrath where he, he destroys God, that Satan, the beasts, the Antichrist, and all the armies that are on their side, then a new age and the golden age of the millennium. Then it's a new, a new time, a new world, so to speak. His, the millennium, I shouldn't say technically a new world, new world. There's going to be a new earth, but it'll be a new age, at least you could say at that point. So those two, there's going to be a first phase of that. Remember that grain harvest towards the end of the tribulation. The whole, he's going to execute this judgment. It's like, all right, we've done this. We've, the, these, these vile judgments, that's his first one, that grain harvest, and then the grape one, this massive one, unlike any other. They said in Jerusalem in 80, uh, 80 70, when, when they finally, when Jerusalem, the Jews of Jerusalem were plundered and Rome, the Roman armies finally, uh, you know, they burnt the city and they killed a lot of Jews. They said there was... I think it was Josephus. There's so much blood, it was actually putting out some fires. So much Jewish blood and bloodshed. I'm sure there was non-Jews too that were killed. But So those two harvests right there. He wanted us to see that before we go any further. Again, what preceded, look at verse 6 of chapter 14. Before all that happened, Casey still saying, I don't know about God. I don't know about Him doing this stuff. Look what happens. Chapter 14, verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation. Not going to miss out on anybody. God's not racist. And kindred and tongue. He, God knows all the languages. And people saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of the waters. So what happens afterwards when we read about this wine press and this grain harvest of many dying, it's not going to be from an unrighteous God who hasn't warned people. He sent an angel. This is a supernatural way of telling the message. And we concluded a few weeks ago saying, you know, we, until then, God's angels are us to fly around on earth and do that. Let's just conclude with a few thoughts here. I have three somewhat overlapping. I said this at the beginning. Number one, remember Jesus is not just a lamb. He's a lion. He's not just a lamb. He's a lion. Psalm 2, 
I'd like to read it, but we won't. Psalm 2 talks about kiss the sun, lest his wrath be kindled a little bit. It's like, is this a bad translation? What is this? You know, No, it's talking about the other side of Jesus. Kiss the sun has the idea of homage. Like the world will not do homage. They will not bow to Jesus. They will not give glory to the Son. So finally, there comes a final day. I'm like, okay, I've shed blood for you. And you're not accepting it. You're shedding blood of human lives all over the place and you're rejecting me. So now they face His wrath. They see the other side of Jesus, but it's righteous. Let's remember again, He's not just a lamb, He's a lion. Number two, we must affirm God's wrath, we, as if we haven't in the message. But in our life, we've got to affirm and not deny the existence of hell, not deny the, the fact that God, yes, will execute wrath one day. You know, this, let's, let's take a few moments, okay, to at least look at the Scriptures. We, we are on the final stretch here, so be patient. Look what John the Baptist said, Luke 3, 7. We'll, we'll just take a glimpse at a couple passages. Luke 3, 7. <clears throat> John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. People came. He was kind of a somewhat of a attraction for some people, a novelty to see. Some actually repented and followed his message. But notice what he says here, Luke 3, verse Seven, then said he to the multitudes that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John's talking about the wrath of God. Who warned you to flee from that? Bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. Let's see if you're real about this and not just fans in the stands. Are you really going to repent and believe this message? Or are you just like watching me dunk people underwater? And so he's talking about a genuine repentance in light of the wrath of God. Uh, let's look in Romans 5.9. I love this. We remember Romans 5.8, But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, Much more than being now justified, cleared out, being now cleared and declared righteous and rescued by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. We shall be saved from wrath. There's the, I believe the church is saved from the wrath that happens on the earth, but we're ultimately in Jesus Christ saved from the wrath of, of hell. I mean, you know, whether you want to argue about a pre-tribulation rapture, I'm convinced of that. Even if you want to argue about that, this is at, 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 uh, at most talking about the wrath of hell. We were saved from that. Let's look in 1 Thessalonians 2. Go to the right, 1 Thessalonians 2. And verse 16. <clears throat> I'm sorry, in the wrong chapter. Let's look at 2.16. 2, 
sorry, it's 1 Thessalonians 1.10. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. To wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. I mean, I was thinking of the, I mean, the harm saying the song, Till the Storm Passes Over. I mean, there's two applications. There's storms in life, and we need God's shelter to help us and give us that peace and see us through it. But the, the, the biggest storm is the, the righteous fury of God on the earth, and that will exhibit in hell. He's like, I don't know if I believe that stuff. Well, you better figure it out. Otherwise, don't waste your time coming here. It's like, is hell real or not? <laughs> if it is, then that's a huge issue. Wow. All right, so let's think about this. We looked at these two harvests. What is it saying? Jesus is not just a, a lamb. He's a lion. Number two, we must affirm God's wrath. And then number three, we must affirm the whole counsel of God. Uh, uh, one more passage. Look in Acts 20. Paul, this is his farewell to a really good, another good church, the church of Ephesus. It's his last meeting, kind of have a little leadership conference here in Acts chapter 20. He gathers together, the elders together. He's talking to them, giving them some encouragement, recounting on how he behaved among them. And in Acts 20, verse 26 and 27, Paul says, Wherefore, I take you to, to record this day, that I am pure from the blood of all men. Why? Why are you? In other words, Paul says, nobody's got anything on me. I've, I've done everything I do. Why? Because, verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. I told you the whole story. I told you the sweet and the sour, the, the, the bitter and the you know, comforting. I told you the whole counsel. Now, what it's saying for us today, it's not like I can actually tell somebody every single word of Scripture. Let's read through the whole thing. But give people the whole picture of God, the whole picture of the gospel, the whole picture of truth. Even the idea, the fact that we say God is love, God is love, God is love. God is love. But you will, you, I, 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 love, I appreciate God's love most because I see it in light of the filthiness of sin and the sinfulness of sin and how it, it is offensive, and it does break His law, and the fact that He has done this for nothing, for me, I had earned nothing, and that makes it God's love. Yes, it's awesome. This is, this is the love of God. He did this for undeserving people. There's nothing that compelled uh, that, 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 that we could do to compel God to give us any favor. It was all of His grace. Like, yes, the love of God's great. But you see it and you appreciate it more when you see the whole picture of, you know, we've offended God. We, we, we've, um, there's, you know, it's like in Romans 3 about there's none. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good. We've all gone out of the way. We have filthy mouths, filthy throats, filthy thoughts, all these things were just bad. But God commends His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the love of God is seen in contrast to that. But the point is, is that, for us Christians today who like to give little... See, we, we live off little... I've noticed in this generation likes these little snippets of uh, those little memes, short little... Oh, that's funny. Short little things of, 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 a, of a little skit or of a little cool thing about God or some funny thing. We like little quick things. 
with us, we have to make sure that we're telling people the whole story of, of Jesus. The whole story of the gospel. The whole counsel of God. And this is one of those parts where like, well, we don't want to, we don't want to, to talk about this. We don't want to talk about um, God's wrath and so on. But that's part of it. It's not like we savor it. It's just it is part of the counsel of God. It is part of it. We, I didn't read it, but what we read also here in this wine press corresponds with chapter, pardon me, chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. Beautiful chapter where John says, I saw heaven open and him that sat on a white horse and he came down, he had armies with him and, and he rules the earth with a rod of iron. He treads the wine press, press of God. And it talks more, a little, gives the other side of the story about the battle of Armageddon and it's, and it's, it's victorious and we'll be on that side and, and uh, because we're saved, because His blood saved us from that wrath. The, the lamb, we first met the lamb so we don't have to meet the lion on the wrong side, Amen. right? We'll be on His side because we accept the meek lamb, we get to be on His side as a lion and kind of behind Him like, go get Him, you know. <laughs> we're coming behind you there. That's how it is. I mean, to make it lighthearted, a difficult thing lighthearted, that's how it 